0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show,
1: I'm Buster. Buster Scruggs. You're shooting iron work. <laughs> Appears to do. Yes, I do hail from Riata Pass, which is in the county of San Saba. Being the Wichita, why the San Saba songbird is my sobriquet of preference. But right now. I'd appreciate it if you'd deposit your weapon in the receptacle by the swinging doors, which concealing of it on your person in the first place was a violation of the rules of this establishment and an offense against local norms.
2: And if and I don't.
1: I'm not a devious man by nature. But when you're unarmed, your tactics might got to be downright Archimedean. Surly Joe, the gambler, he will gamble nevermore. His days of stud and hold them, they are done. It was long about last April he stepped into this saloon. But he never really took to anyone Surly Joe Surly Joe. Surly, Joe. Surly Joe, Surly Joe, Oh, wherever he's gambling now, I don't know <laughs> He was slick, but I was slicker He drew quick, but I was quicker And the table stopped his ticker, Surly Joe yee Surly Joe, Surly, Surly Joe, Joe. Surly Joe. Surly Joe Won't be missed by anyone, but Surly Joe space is gone guess your frowning days are done oh surly joe yeah.
0: and those were scenes from the revisionist to say the least cone brothers 2018 western the ballad of buster Scruggs, and tim blake nelson as that unpredictable cheerful singing cowboy known as surly joe arriving at an isolated cantina full of outlaws where he exchanges insults with a random miscreant before all hell breaks loose. And Nelson is our guest on the show this week, talking about his latest mysterious and unpredictable venture into a Western as the title character Old Henry, and reflecting on how the Western has changed along with the political upheaval of this country from the 1950s delineated good versus bad cowboy to the more subversive perspective of who may or may not be a villain. Those gray areas inevitably expanding as America's right-versus-wrong position in the world drifts increasingly towards deception and meaninglessness and connections during this conversation to cooking dinner, his three sons, and playing angry fathers named Henry in this movie as well as James Franco's Bukowski. And Nelson, who grew up in Tulsa, also shares thoughts on this 100th commemoration this year of the Tulsa Race Massacre as a reaction in his own life. First, some scenes from Old Henry, then Tim Blake Nelson.
1: Better think long and hard on what you got yourself into. Funny, I was about to tell you the same thing. Riders. There gonna be three of them. I'm Sheriff Sam Ketchum. We've been scouting for a man on the run.
3: He's dangerous. They ain't lawmen. They bank robbers. Your last name McCarty? That's right. First name?
1: Henry.
0: Why they didn't shoot you dead, I don't know.
1: I got this crazy idea.
0: There might be more to old Henry than meets the eye. Some shaky old farmer? He didn't hold that pistol like any farmer I've ever seen.
1: Listen to me. What's going to happen, will happen quick.
0: You got a lot of fight for a farmer.
1: You have no idea
3: the hell storm you fixing to let loose. Consider me properly warned.
1: Where'd you come from? Every place on Earth but this. Who are you, Paul? Hi, Prairie Miller.
0: Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: What was it about Old Henry, the story, and as a Western that drew you in? And what can you say about your mysterious character that led you to want to play him and get inside his head? My... My uh,
1: introduction to this role happened when I was offered it. I was I was cooking dinner and I got an email that said you've been offered this role, Henry, in the movie Old Henry. And I thought, well, all right, it happened. I'm I'm now playing characters who are described as old. It was it was inevitable. Uh, but I'll <laughs> I'll read it. Um, and I didn't even know it was a western uh, until I and read a few pages, uh, and it was manifestly, it was obvious, um, and what took me in really was that it was about a relationship between a father and son, ultimately, and I have three sons and, am in the midst of raising all three of them still, one's 22, one's 18, and, and one's 16. I feel like I'm on the, on the, Uh, back end of it, but still uh, very much um, raising them. Uh, And I loved what the movie had to say about fatherhood. Mm. In particular, the, the opposing forces within raising children of, do I protect them from the world, or do I expose them to the world so that they can deal with its challenges.
0: Now, not so long ago, you played another angry father called Henry, Henry Bukowski in James Franco's Bukowski. So would you say there's anything about playing angry fathers that draws you in? I, I,
1: that's an interesting question. I loved, you know, I, I, I hope James's movie will come out. It's a really good movie uh and I, I he's holding it back uh, and I believe it will come out at the right time um I like playing interesting challenging parts mm. Until you ask that question I have never associated the Henry I play in old Henry with the with Charles Bukowski's actual historical father. I can see why you asked the question and, In certain respects, they are connected, although old Henry, the father in old Henry, acts out of love for his boy. And Henry Bukowski, Charles Bukowski's father, acted more out of resentment, jealousy, bitterness, and sometimes hatred. And so I think the characters are both fathers they're both angry at times, but diverge in deeper ways.
0: Now, would you say the backwoods, eccentric characters you tend to play, as with old Henry, are by design or coincidence?
1: I'm I'm self-selective as an actor. Uh, it, you know, you just look at me and you're not... You're not going to want to put me in, the, in a mainstream lead role or even as, the, uh, as a, a, a handsome sidekick. I'm, I just tend to get offered roles that are off-center or eccentric, backwoods sometimes, um, because I think physically I'm just more credible in those sorts of roles. And luckily, um, I've been able to, to make them seem uh, human and believable. I hope, anyway.
0: Now, you're originally from Tulsa, and this year is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Any thoughts or personal experiences to share about that?
1: I can say that growing up in Tulsa... Um was how do I answer that? Um I'm heartened to see Tulsa dealing with its past in the way it is right now. The Tulsa in which I was raised was one of the most segregated cities in America. And my area of the city was so protected and cosseted from even a hint of diversity, and so therefore protected is probably the wrong word, um, deprived of diversity, just by by virtue of, um, I think, what people could afford by and large And by how the local economy inhibited opportunities for people of color, uh, that I I didn't even realize there'd been a race massacre in 1921 until I got to college and learned about it from a professor. Hmm. It's been very gratifying to me not only to see a show like Watchmen get made, but to have been a part of it.. yeah. And then to experience it, to experience what I consider a a, 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 a a real reckoning in Tulsa, at least among many uh, with that awful past.
0: And what are your thoughts about what this story, Old Henry, is saying about the Wild West and outlaws as an enduring national mythology and a reflection of the American character, past and present?
1: The Western is a quintessentially American genre because it combines libertarianism with the gun. And libertarianism is distinctively American because we believe in individualism more than collectivism. Mm. I think, and you know, at heart, and our country was founded on that. And our country was also founded because we're a young country um, with the gun rather than the sword or the mace or the cavalry. Uh, um, um, the sword or the mace, I guess. Cavalry still exists with guns. Um, in cinema, which is an American art form originally. Uh, and so the Western is never gonna go away and, and, and I'm thankful for that, but the Western will evolve. Uh, there used to be the white hat and the black hat, good and evil in a Western. It was a very Manichean vision of the world. Now you have really flawed characters uh, that started with the Sergio Leone movies, but A character like um, Clint Eastwood's in Unforgiven and also hopefully um, uh, we've added to that because the character I play in Old Henry is, is quite flawed. And so the genre persists but it evolves.
0: And it's been speculated that the anarchy of the Old West and the outlaws were actually in many cases PTSD survivors of the Civil War and broken personalities. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I
1: think that, insofar as insofar as westerns post or historical figures in the West, outlaws in the West post the Civil War, so in the 1870s, uh you can ascribe PTSD to certain figures, but, That that doesn't go far in explaining all the um, miscreancy that occurred uh, in the old West in the 1830s and the 1840s and the the massacres that are associated with westward expansion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would say yes and no. I think it's an interesting point. But since demented behavior is as old as humankind. I don't think that all of it can be attributed to PTSD.
0: Okay. Thank you, Tim Blake Nelson, for calling into our show. You bet. And Old Henry is out now in release this week. And now on Arts Express...
4: Nothing prepares you for the physical shock of the passage into Gaza. One writer has said that driving from Israel into the Gaza Strip is like driving from California into Bangladesh. You become so used to the broad highways, the easy sensuality of Israel, that it is the sight of dust. Sudden dust, an unholy big brown storm of pure dirt, nothing else, which alerts you to the fact that you are about to enter a society where people earn precisely 8% of what their opposite numbers earn in Israel. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. There are many enjoyable memoirs where actors write about their life in theater and film. The autobiographies of Laurence Olivier and Marlon Brando come to mind. But one of my favorite memoirs about acting is David Hare's Acting Up. Uh, The British born David Hare is not a professional actor, but rather an acclaimed playwright and director, the author of several hit plays and movies you probably know, including Plenty starring Meryl Streep, The Hours and The Reader. But in Acting Up, Hare talks about the difficult situation he wrote himself into and how he had to meet the unique challenge of playing himself on stage. The book Acting Up, subtitled The Diary, covers a period of time in the late 1990s when Hare was asked by the Royal Court Theatre in London to go to Israel to write a play about the British Mandate in the 30s and 40s. But when Harry turned, shaken by the Israelis and Palestinians he had spoken to and their political enmity, he decided he wanted to write about the situation in Israel as it was now and talk about the people he had met. In short, he decided to write a 90-minute theater monologue called Via Dolorosa about what he had seen and heard and how it had affected him and he came to the inevitable conclusion that the only person who could tell that story of his experience authentically to a theater audience was himself, even though he had never before acted on stage. He had directed and written for actors and actresses like Anthony Hopkins, Judy Dench, Mike Nichols, and Kate Nelligan on the stage, yet he had never appeared on stage himself. Hare presciently kept a journal of his experiences working on the play from the first rehearsal in August of 1998 to its very last performance in June of 1999, and it's a fascinating book because it's not only the record of an actor preparing for a role, but it's also the record of a person learning to act. And Hare is quite ruthless with himself and the people around him. His frustrations and triumphs are honestly reported. At the first rehearsal of Via Dolorosa among the director and designers, Hare frighteningly realizes that he is now the person in the room with the least knowledge of his job. Hare's diary takes us day by day through each rehearsal. It's soon apparent that the writer David Hare is not kind to the actor David Hare, for just as the actor feels in rehearsal that he's gotten a fix on the script, The writer part of Hare demands whole chunks of the script be thrown out and replaced, only to flummox the actor once again. And Hare soon has to confront what it's like to be on the other side of the director-actor equation. He soon learns that after a childish outburst of his at his director, the sensitive Stephen Daldry, that he has broken trust and has now become, to his dismay and shame, the kind of actor that directors need to handle with kid gloves to be coddled and managed. But fortunately, Hare has a crackerjack team of assistants to help him. He has a physical trainer named Natalie to help him with physical stamina who works with him every day. And he has the world-famous voice coach, Patsy Roddenberg, who informs him right away that he's speaking only from the shoulders up and that he will have to unlock the rest of his body if he's to communicate effectively on stage and yet that turns out to be harder than one might imagine. Hare realizes that the technical demands of theatre, simply to be heard each night and simply to come up with the emotions each night, simply to remember the lines, means that there is no artlessness without art, and art masks art. He's constantly told by friends like Judy Dench that he's no actor. But Hare begins to learn, and in Hare's honest Daily Diary entries, he makes clear what the struggles of the actor are. To somehow connect to the audience with his mind, body, and soul, he comes to understand the life of the actor, not only creating a role, but maintaining and refining it. And the practical details of how to manage one's life as one is in a long run are also extremely interesting. There are lots of acting books, but not so many that detail performance by performance the rigors of a long run, the problems that are faced and how to cope with them. After all, the challenge that theater poses is that it's not enough to get it right once as it is in film or television or radio where you can do take after take. But the actor is more like a baseball player. The theater actor has to knock the ball out of the park each time at bat. What does it take to make the hundredth performance as good as the first? Hare also learns what it is to be on stage for 90 minutes. In the structure of the play, there's not a chance to take a break, and the physical and mental exertion required to sustain 90 minutes of emotional power is staggering. At some performances, his voice gives out and he can only speak in a whisper. At other times, he's so physically drained, he can barely make it to the end of the show. If he gets distracted for a moment, he can go up on his lines, and there's no other actor to pull him back it becomes clear to Hare that his dream of a cushy life where he's only working 90 minutes a night is a fantasy he realizes that his whole day really revolves preparing for those 90 minutes what he eats what he drinks who he sees in the day could all have adverse consequences on his later performance he becomes in his own words an actor creep Always worried about his voice and stamina, carrying around a bottle of water so that he can hydrate, 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 always begging off on any invitations. And to top it off, he learns he is being swindled. He finds out that it's absurd to be doing eight performances a week in a one man show. Nobody does it. He talks with the monologist Spalding Gray, who tells Hare that when he was doing his monologue, Swimming to Cambodia, He only did two to three performances a week. Eventually, Hare gets invited to perform the play Across the Ocean in New York City. Here, Hare is even more alone. His director, after a brief initial period, has gone back to England, as has Hare's wife. The potential to become unmoored is even greater. And in a twist of fate, a different play written by Hare, Amy's View starring Judy Dench has opened a few blocks away from him. So he's actually competing with himself. And then word was that the subject matter of Via Dolorosa would not go down well with a large portion of Jewish Broadway theatergoers in New York City. Given the play's criticism of Israeli settlers and the government, and the featuring of Palestinian points of view, the presence of which were quite unusual in the popular discourse at that point. But despite the passive-aggressive ignoring of the play by the New York Times, the play became a must-see and the talk of the town. And at one point during the run, the widow of the assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin came to see the play, and afterwards a nervous hare received her backstage. After a few awkward moments she finally says to him, My husband would have loved the play. And then, there are the coughers. Ralph Richardson once said that acting is the art of keeping an audience from coughing for two hours. But there were also the deliberate coughers, intent on sabotaging Hare's play, which was something Hare didn't foresee. How do you deal with that? Do you stop the show? Anthony Hopkins did it the night I saw Equus. He demanded to start the show again from the top. But not everyone is Anthony Hopkins. The crazy thing is the actor up there doesn't always even know whether he's given a good performance or not. Hare tells of one performance where at the end he came off stage swearing that the audience were the worst bunch of mother-blankers he'd ever encountered. But when he walked back on stage for the curtain call, he entered to a solid wall of cheering, almost the best reception he had ever had. His director told him it was the best show of his he'd seen. So, says Hare, what do i know reminds me of a laurence olivier story where he gives this amazing performance and his director goes back to olivier's dressing room only to find the great actor sobbing with his head in his hands and larry the director says for god's sake why are you crying it was a fantastic performance i know Wales olivier but i have no idea how i did it and theater goers often talk about how a particular performance has influenced them maybe even change them in some way. But less often discussed is how acting changes the actor, how feeling the possibility of being another person transforms the actor in everyday life. In the theater, the transmission of knowledge is first the writer who has the initial impulse and knows more about the play than anyone, then the director who has studied the play and can look at it from the outside, who knows more than the writer or cast at that first rehearsal. But at last, It is the actor who knows more about the play, more about the character than even the writer or the director and certainly the critic. Because the actor has lived the role in the body, the words have all coursed through the brain and lips. The character's motivations have become merged with the actors. Latent parts of the actor are accessed. Different notes are struck. Different colors are on the palette. Understanding and empathy can grow. Even though David Hare was playing himself, he recognizes that the actor has learned more about the character of David Hare than the writer knew. He has changed. His wife tells him after the run that now he walks differently, breathes differently. In a key part of the book, Patsy Roddenberg, the voice coach, describes to Hare the frustration of regularly auditioning young actors who arrive to see her. Presentable, competent, assured yet they lack the element that would make sense of their chosen profession. They do not convince you of their need to speak. David Hare, who was not an actor, took a ridiculous gamble, maybe one that he had no business taking, and hit the jackpot. He won the New York Drama Critics Award for Outstanding One Man Show that year. He convinced his audiences, as Patsy Roddenberg said, of his need to speak. I've been talking about David Hare's account of his brief but transformative acting career in his memoir, Acting Up, published by Faber and Faber. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. I bet you I'm gonna be a big star Might win an Oscar, you can not never tell The movie's gonna make me a big star Cause I can play
1: the part so well
0: And coming up next on Arts Express, Mayday really tells a story about this young woman trying to find her inner strength and power and I hope it's especially for young women, because this was a tough year, and I think this is a hopeful story that people can get through hard times. Actress Grace Van Patten, in a conversation about May Day, a fantasy drama about an abused hotel worker transported to another world, where war is raging of young women, an update of the sirens of Greek mythology, In a face-off against male soldiers, they lure with radio transmissions and the male perception of female physical and psychological power over men as both fascinating and frightening. Patton, the cousin of Talia Balsam, daughter of Martin Balsam, and whose uncle was the late comic actor Dick Van Patten, and who started out in The Sopranos as a child, and who is currently in the dramatic series nine perfect strangers talks about that as well and also discusses the possibility of new and different challenges faced by her younger female millennial generation first some scenes from mayday then grace van patten
1: this is the victory we're receiving your signal request to know if you're in distress
2: do you like the radio there's a storm one mile south. Yes, I am in distress.
1: Help is on the way. How many souls on board?
0: We don't have any souls.
1: Man, can you beat me?
0: Man, we have no bearing. We are taking on wolverine. We get man overboard! Ready, ready, frosty creatures. You must be the new girl. What is this?
2: Where are we? Where we belong? Soon you'll be a whole new person. You never had a chance back there, Anna. A chance for what? A chance to win? Do you remember what happened to you before you came here?
0: It wasn't a very good story. So I'm giving you a new one. Now. A lot of girls get even when they get here.
2: Okay, girls, time to go. Where are we going? Hunting.
0: It feels like a nightmare. That's normal.
2: I don't belong here. I wanna go back. I'm tired of seeing all the girls in trouble. You're getting (laughs) back. After everything I've given you, I made you into a hero. You made me into a psychopath. It's the same thing!
0: Mary. Alpha. (coughs) Yankee. Delta. (coughs) Alpha. Yankee. You're a monster. We're all monsters. What was it about Mayday that drew you in?
2: Ah, so, so many things. (laughs) Um, I have never read a script script like Mayday. And I've never felt like I wanted to read a script a second time just when I put it down for the first time. Um, And I thought it was just so magical in so many ways and really told a story about this young woman trying to find... Her inner strengths and power, and um, it's told in such a fantastical and original way. And every time I read it, there was there was a new meaning I found, or a new new little gem, or a new metaphor. And I was so so drawn into it and intrigued by this this world that Karen created. Um, and also just the idea of of working with all women excited me so much. I've never gotten to do that and. People don't do that enough, and um, it was such an empowering experience doing that.
0: And what about your character, Anna, a complex and conflicted female that got you on board May Day, and how did you go about getting inside her head?
2: It took a lot of conversations with Karen, the director, um, and, and everyone really involved, but Karen, Karen had such a specific vision for the whole movie, and... Anna's essence, and we, we wanted to make sure we we captured that, especially in the beginning, um, because when you meet Anna, she's broken, and she's she's really in this deep rut in her life and in, is in de- desperate need of, of hope. And so so just making sure that, that that tracked when you first meet her and making sure you see, see the journey of her coming out the under, other end of it.
0: And did you identify with Anna in any way or not?
2: I did. I, I, I identified with her curiosity and her, her need to connect sometimes because I know when I'm sad or feeling low, I, I go to my friends and my family, and this is such a big part of, of the movie is, is sisterhood and friendships and female friendships which are so important and really can can be the saving grace when you're when you're not doing well.
0: Now the characters you've chosen to play in Nine Perfect Strangers, the sopranos and Mayday, would you say those choices are by design or coincidence?
2: It's interesting. I do play a lot of sad <laughs> girls. <laughs> I'm happy, I promise. Um, no, I it is it is funny because Zoe, my character in Nine Perfect Strangers, is very similar to Anna, um, in in a way that's they're they're very broken and need to kind of get pieced back together. Um, and but but that is coincidental, and I, I I do find that it's just hard to find deep female roles that are layered and complex and. These just happened to be two in a row that that I felt were so um, so beautiful and and important stories to tell.
0: And your first role was in The Sopranos as Ali Pantokravos. What was that whole experience like for you?
2: I mean, I was eight, so I don't think I was thinking about complexity of characters then. I wish I I wish I could say I was, but. I was just I was just in it for the fun then.
0: <laughs> and what are your thoughts about what this story is all about? Ideas of female empowerment, sexual conflict and wars?
2: It it touches upon a lot, which I was really intrigued by reading the script and and also that while it does touch upon those things it is so interpretable and and anyone can take it however they want you know it's like a beautiful painting you can look at it and and find it to be one way one time and another another time and i do find that at the root of it it's about um sisterhood and connection and support and um being able to confront the parts of yourself that that you're afraid to um, and then ultimately come out the other end of it. Um, and in this case, Anna, you know, falls into this fantasy land. And I think each girl symbolizes a part of herself that she has to kind of confront. Mm. And once she she does that, she's able to to move on with her life with this newfound strength that she didn't have before.
0: In terms of the females in this movie, how do you feel the issues they face are different from previous generations? However surreal this movie,
2: right? You know, I would say what's different from our generation is that we have social media now, but but uh, in Mayday Land, there's none of that. So <laughs> none of that. Just just uh, young soldiers that we lure and kill. <laughs> I mean, because it is so surreal, Um, it's you can you can kind of place it however you want with whatever issues you feel or traumas or um, it's so it's so personal in that way. Um, But the problems we face as women are age old and they, they have been the same for eternity. So I think in that way, it's still relatable and, and women, every, every woman will be able to connect to that.
0: And are you working on anything next?
2: Um, I, my, my next thing is another show at Hulu called Tell Me Lies, which I'm very excited about. It's based off of a book by Carol Lovering. And, um, it's, it's very, very exciting. It's about a, very toxic relationship over the course of eight years. And it it really dives deep into, into every aspect of that. So I'm excited to, to start that up.
0: And with your very talented family that includes comic actor, Dick Van Patten and cousin Talia Balsam, daughter of the late Martin Balsam, do you feel they influenced you creatively in any way?
2: I think they definitely inspired me. Um, to, to get into the business, but also just to, to ask questions. And um, it's nice to, to know that I have people that understand the business and know, know both sides of it or all sides of it. Um, so that, that is comforting and, and they're very supportive. So it's very nice.
0: And any last word about Mayday?
2: I think I think anyone can find meaning of their own in it, and it's. It, I hope it. I hope it gives people hope, especially young women, because um, this was a tough year, and everyone went through it. And um, I think it's a it's a hopeful story that that people can get through hard times.
0: And May Day is out in release this week. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the global television beat. This week's episode, a battle for the soul of popular media. What will this brave new world of streamer domination look like with these streamers circulating the globe? With the rise of the streamers not being spurred by COVID as portrayed in the U.S. press as a battle between streamers and theaters, but rather they will slice up the market as capitalist monopolies always do. And in their usual savagery, the streamer corporations unmercifully cutting thousands of employees, along with more documentaries and reality TV as cheaper to produce, and regressive scenarios, for instance, featuring mail-order brides.
3: This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode a battle for the soul of popular media. The pre-COVID situation saw the streaming services coming to theater owners hat in hand, often begging for an opening. The new big seven, Netflix, Amazon, Disney+, HBO Max, Apple+, Paramount+, and Peacock now both command a greater share of the audience, and in many cases, particularly with HBO Max and Disney+, either open their films online or open both online and in theaters. With the theater, Chains forced by these conglomerates to accommodate to a shrunken exclusivity window, as the largest chain AMC did, the polarity is reversed. Theaters now may function much like major television events, like the Super Bowl and, well, sometimes the Academy Awards. They will open films that then go quickly to streaming or that play off of earlier theatrical openings for prestige. Netflix used the theatrical success of Knives Out, a splashy star-laden feature in the vein of previous star agglomeration vehicles like the 70s studio release Murder on the Orient Express, to then build attention for its $400 million acquisition of the next two films of what it is making into not a theatrical, but a streaming franchise. Well, Peacock, or NBC Universal, paid 45 million to restart an Exorcist trilogy, with the opener in the theaters to garner attention, and the next two films going directly to the streaming service as subscriber enlisters. For every Fast and Furious 9, which boasted global opening week profits of 405 million and a post-COVID record of 70 million in the US, there was, as Deadline pointed out, an army of the dead, which, though it had generally strong reviews, garnered only 700,000 in 600 theaters, as viewers, whose streaming appetite for the director Zack Snyder's brand of bombast had recently been stoked by the HBO Max release of the four-hour director's cut of his Justice League, waited the extra week for it to play on Netflix. As one media executive put it, noting that the combination of streamers setting up during the still-persistent COVID lockdown had opened Pandora's box I hope we'll still have theatrical left in the box, but it won't look the same. Adding to the streamer's power is the shrinking distance between film and television, in some sense erasing the last vestige of the prestige or aura of film as a special theatrical and artistic event. Directors and actors now frequently move back and forth. In addition, Marvel Studios, a part of Disney+, has shrunk this distance this year in its interweaving of television and films as its vaunted Phase 4 alternates between the two and adjusts the continuity in its universe accordingly. Disney Plus's Star Wars franchise has now followed suit, with this most prominent contemporary exemplar, the multiple Emmy-nominated series The Mandalorian, to be followed by nine new series and corresponding films. Profits have never been greater for these online winners, as many renters are about to be kicked out of their homes as COVID eviction moratoriums end. Apple, Google, and Microsoft all almost or more than doubled their profits from the previous quarter, with Apple's profits rising 47 percent to $16.5 billion, but with the company's stock falling because profits were predicted to have been greater. But as with any capitalist enterprise, the house of cards may quickly collapse, and most observers do not believe that consumers, with inflation gaining ground, wages at a standstill or lowering, and jobs being lost to a new wave of automation, have enough money to subscribe to all the services. A wave of mergers accompanied this movement online, and these seven media conglomerates will likely shrink to four or five, with Peacock and Paramount Plus potential losers and with global and U.S. competition accelerating between Netflix, Disney Plus, and HBO Max. Weakened theater chains will also shrink, with AMC, which itself barely survived the closing of all 10,700 theaters during the lockdown, a potential buyer for the now-bankrupt California Pacific Theaters Corporation. But what will this brave new world of streaming domination, with these services now circling the globe, look like? The nightmare scenario, as profit predominates, is supplied by HBO Max, the former Time Warner, which previously merged with the conservative Texas communications company, AT&T, a company which saw the enterprise purely as a least common denominator profit center and immediately attempted to discipline its occasionally rambunctious element, HBO. AT&T, after the usual merger savagery in which it unmercifully cut 2,000 employees, then stepped out of the spotlight, though it controls the majority of stock, and instead is merging the company with the Discovery Channel and its affiliates, appointing Discovery head David Zaslav as the new HBO Max head. Zaslov comes from the world of documentary and documentary film and television. Cheaper to produce has become much more popular as streaming service fare. The high end of this genre are Netflix series like The Innocence Project about DNA testing proving the guilty innocent. The low end is a non-stop Netflix true crime series and reality TV. Zaslav declared himself to be against paying showrunners huge fees for the kinds of scripted series that have distinguished serial TV and added a social dimension to its offerings. Instead, the new director favors cheaper, unscripted fares such as 90 Day Fiance, a series which reinstitutes in the era of Me Too regressive scenarios featuring mail-order brides. One can feel the long arm of AT&T still in control. Another problem with streaming domination Is its promotion of the Netflix model of creators not being paid residuals and instead only a lump sum up front. The studios were notorious for hiding their profits so they would not have to pay residuals with Paramount famously declaring in the Art Buckwald case that it had made no money on coming to America and so owed nothing to the screenwriter. The streamers hide their subscriber data and so even to calculate and pay residuals will be difficult in this era of excessive tracking of user actions, but minimal accounting of those actions released to the public. The lump sum payment then allows the streamers to build and maintain their catalog in perpetuity, with creators reaping no reward for their ongoing part in building that catalog. In this transition period, the sudden switch to online also short-circuits artists' theatrical residual payments and is now the subject of a lawsuit by Black Widow star Scarlett Johansson against Disney. Spike Lee is right. The streamers and the theaters will work out their differences in a shared but shifted balance of power. What this discussion, the main focus in the entertainment media, conceals, though, is that the major loser of this online American dominance is likely to be government-financed global film and television, which is often more socially conscious than the fare put forth by the American streamers. That is the rival that these privatized services are actually working against and working to undermine. I'll conclude with a look at streaming service rivals around the world, which, though listed as private companies, are often supported by public financing. The first point is that the Americans are attempting, as the streamers decrease the attendance, to throttle local services as well. They do this not only by competing, but also by vastly outspending these services in their own countries because of the revenues from their global sweep. However, they are also not above working with them in shared windows, and in that way accommodating to them as they undermine them. One of the most prominent local rivals is the Scandinavian service Viaplay, which is now rapidly expanding throughout Europe and soon to be available in the U.S. The service, which encompasses programming not only from Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, but also Finland and Iceland, has now also expanded into Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Its signature shows are the dark crime series like The Bridge and The Killing, which have been exported around the world. Vioplay now has production deals with NBC Universal, MGM, Sony, and Fox, and in its expansion describes its fare as genuinely Nordic but also tailored to a global audience. Will this American studio investment and this need to go global to compete foster a diluting of the social specifics which have made these series so tantalizing to global audiences? The streamer would seem to be attempting to straddle this line, as new entries in progress include Glacier, a Swedish disaster film written by Nordic noir star author Camilla Lackberg, and Lars von Trier's sequel to one of the greatest series on serial TV, and along with Twin Peaks, one of its originators the Kingdom, with his The Kingdom Exodus. The original, a critique of Western corporate dominated medicine, is an antidote to syrupy doctor shows like Grey's Anatomy or even better intentioned validations of public hospitals such as New Amsterdam. Finnish television production is also booming with another Finnish streamer, Eliza Vide, home to the series All the Sins, about the masculine cultural violence of a Lutheran sect in the extreme north of that country, and Deadwind, each of whose two seasons featured major storylines about, respectively, a transfer from oil to wind power and the corruption around a tunnel connecting the country to the European and Estonian mainland. Deadwind, bought by Netflix, is at least partially financed by the Finnish government, a fact that tends to be concealed now that the series has the global streaming imprimatur. In order to compete, streamers such as Viaplay are also challenging the Netflix flat fee model and instead conceding to its artists both upfront fees and residuals as a way that, if they succeed, may be a break on the American streaming service pattern. However, producers are also tempted to resort to the flat fee model and sell to the American streamers because of their prominence of release on a global scale, or their promise of release on a global scale. The rise of the streaming services spurred by COVID is not then primarily, as portrayed in the American press, either a battle between various services or between streaming services and theater owners. They will slice up the market as capitalist monopolies always do. It's primarily a battle between private, fully for-profit American companies with often little social conscience, as Netflix proclaimed itself to be in the business to entertain, not to speak truth to power, against government-backed, often more socially motivated global film and television. This is a battle for the soul of popular media. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass.